Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hollywood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with the Royal Bank of Scotland. The Royal Bank has been part of Scottish communities for almost 300 years, helping businesses thrive, growing the economy, supporting customers to manage their money and to fulfil their financial dreams. From the world's first overdraft to the first fully fledged internet banking service, the Royal Bank of Scotland has always innovated to make banking easier for customers. Today, the Royal Bank supports around one in three Scottish businesses and is one of the largest banks in Scotland for personal customers. It also remains one of Scotland's largest private sector employers, contributing millions of pounds to the economy each year. As we approach the Royal Bank's third centenary in 2027, the bank's commitment to Scotland and to championing the potential of the people, families and businesses who call Scotland their home remains as strong as ever. The podcast starts now. In terms of the eight billion investment into Rosebank, do you support that? Of, of Rosebank, yeah. I've not made that decision. Do you support this, it? You were you're do talking. You you're, you're talking about a you, reserved policy. You you're asking it? a minister in a devolved government about reserved policy. Do you welcome the investment? I didn't have any part in that decision. So, sorry for clarity. You could still welcome it. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you, you can you can look at me with those puppy dog eyes for as oh. long as you want, Callum. You've asked me two questions of which you know it's impossible for me to give an, an answer. Why? In to be honest. Space. Okay. To well, be honest. And with thanks for the compliment, uh, Jeff. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources. We're recording on Wednesday the 7th of February. I'm Callum McDonald. And also on the podcast, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Hello. And Andy McKeever's here too, who was Director of Communications to the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Hello. 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 Uh, lovely to have you both here. And we're back to normal. We're doing a normal episode this week. Uh, I say that because last week, as you will have heard, it's still in your feed, was our energy special debate in Aberdeen uh, with the Aberdeen and Grampian Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for the invitation. They asked us to go and host the debate. Uh, and thank you to the politicians, Gillian Martin, the energy minister, Sarah Boyack from Labour and Douglas Lumsden from the Scottish Conservatives as well, who engaged in 90 minutes of conversation about energy policy in a room filled with 300 people in Aberdeen, i.e. they know what they're talking about. I mean, first of all, we should reflect on who was in the room, Jeff, because there were people from all kind of levels of the energy industry, whether that is big companies or supply chain companies or people who are kind of in training and working their way up. This was a room full of a huge breadth of expertise. Yeah, it certainly was. And um, I was really impressed with the, the, the questions that they posed to the politicians. Um, these were serious questions. And, and you rightly point out that 
uh, they represented all different sectors within the energy industry. So there was uh, pure play oil and gas. There was oil and gas companies that are transitioning and, and trying to capitalize on opportunities in, in offshore wind and green hydrogen. There was uh, companies representing hydrogen, um, uh, uh, pure play off, offshore wind uh, companies as well. And so there was a really good cross-section of the industry. And I thought that the most important thing, if you take a step away from you know the content of the debate, which I'm sure we'll get into very briefly, but um, the sheer interest in the event uh, is something that I think is, is something that we, as a podcast even, should acknowledge because mm. um, they don't, you know, they don't, Aberdeen doesn't have events like that. And so we were kind of um, fighting a little bit blind, but to see such interest, and I think there was 100 people on the waiting list as well. So we were at capacity uh, and it just shows you the, the appetite for discussing these issues of importance. And I think for the politician side of things, they should recognise that this is a huge issue, not just for the northeast of Scotland, not just for Scotland, but for the UK uh, as a whole. You know, e- energy security, how we transition to net zero um, across different disciplines uh, in energy is one of the most important priorities for all of us. Uh, and I thought that that was really reflected in the event. Mm. And I would like to add to that, that the level of interest in doing these things on specific issues, I think is something that we as a podcast are very open to do more of. So if you're listening to this and you think this issue, whatever it is, farming, fishing, transport, whatever it is, if you think there's a a discussion to be had in depth like we did last week for 90 minutes, then let us know because we're very interested in doing that. And I think, Jeff, your point on, you know, taking this thing to Aberdeen, um, obviously it makes sense for a number of reasons, but also it's really important that we reflect all of Scotland and the interest of all of Scotland, particularly in this, an election year, and then going forward to Scottish parliamentary elections in a couple of years' time as well. This is what we want this podcast to do, is to is to lead conversation, to have conversations with you, with politicians all around the country on all sorts of issues. Um, Andy, in terms of just sort of debriefing then on some of the issues that we covered um, last week, I mean, there was everything from the energy profits levy, so the windfall tax on energy companies' profits, to Scottish government policy, which we should get at some point soon, shouldn't we? Their actual energy kind of strategy and, and policy document, um, to what Labour and the Conservatives would kind of throw in there as as alternatives as well. What do you think? What did you learn? What are you taking away from from last week's discussion? Um, I think there are two. I suppose, let me offer a positive and a negative. Mm-hmm. I think the positive thing about last week was the number of people in the room who have the expertise and the ability to unlock Scotland's future energy. And as I said on the night, this is not about 50 years of oil and gas. This is about hundreds of years of wind um, and therefore of green hydrogen production, a continent's worth of green hydrogen, which we can uh, make the backbone of the economy for our children and our grandchildren and all of that. And the people in the room are the ones who were able to unlock that. They were the experts. I mean, you know, the, the people who we had at these tables, uh, if you look through the lists, are the leading experts in this area. Mm. So that's the positive thing, is that we have this potential. But my negative from the night is actually that word, potential, because the word potential got used a lot last week. The problem with potential is that you can't make a living on it. And at some point, we have to stop talking about potential and start actually getting this done. And I didn't come away with any coherent impression that there was a universal basic direction of travel amongst the parties. I mean, obviously, different political parties all have different emphasis and they'll, uh, you know, they want to do certain things in certain ways and they might have views about certain types of energy over others and so on. But what I was hoping was that we would get some sort of general direction of travel that all the parties basically agreed on, a set of ground rules that mm. they agreed on. And I'm not sure we had that. And as I said on the night, my issue is that if you go to somewhere like Norway or Sweden, Um, who are seen as being the leaders in transition. They may not have the same potential we have or the same expertise we have, but they're seen as being leaders in transition. I don't think they talk about potential quite as much. They they actually just do it. Um, And I think that all the politicians of all the parties, they accept what the ground rules are. Um, 
and I don't think we do accept yet what the ground rules are. So negatives and positives, but I mean, it was a great event. And just to add an addition to your previous edition, Callum, <laughs> yeah. we started this podcast a year ago and the whole point of the podcast was not that we would be interviewing politicians because um, that's not what, at least not well, it's what you do on uh, Thursday uh, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday on Times Radio. Thank Quick you. Plug for you there. But it's not what Jeff and I do. We have conversations and this podcast was about having long form conversations about policy. And since last week, I've had loads of people coming to me and saying, oh, that was really good. You should do one in health. You mm. should do one in education. You should do one in the rural, the issues in rural Scotland. So I think we will do that, to be honest, because yeah. um, it was a very rare chance to hear in long form, discursive form, what our politicians are doing in these important areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I might just add to that uh, on your negative, uh, Andy, um, I thought the, the three politicians equipped themselves reasonably well, but I was a bit disappointed there wasn't more um, coherent vision from each of them. We're in an election year. We know this is going to be a hot topic of discussion. And I felt that they were quite um, timid at times on explaining Yes, we all want to get there. We all agree that. But they weren't really explaining how we were going to get there. And I think if I was reflecting on that from a from a strategic point of view, from the political parties, um, future manifestos that will be coming out, I'd be thinking long and hard about how we answer these questions. Uh, because what's clear to me is, you know, we've got a, an industry that's very, very willing to scrutinise mm. uh, and, and make their voice heard. And I'd like to see more meat on the bones of these particular uh, policies that are going to impact us all. And that's the thing that we must remember about this. We talk about energy as if it's a siloed area of policy. It impacts every single one of us, whether it's our household bills, um, how we heat our homes, how we travel, um, right through to how we keep the lights on. And so I, I want to see more specific policies and real action. And, and there is going to be some difficult decisions that have to be made that might fly in the face of previous um, uh, uh, pronouncements from the parties. But this is an election year. People expect to see from their politicians a coherent vision and framework and strategy. And I think what we learned from last week is that's going to be tested uh, to its limits uh, going forward. Um, one of the things about this, as we were saying, is that the podcast is a conversation. And I'm always keen that when we do things like the energy special last week, that we keep the conversation going. And it's clearly something we'll return to. Uh, but I want to just read a couple of your emails that came in after uh, either being in the audience or indeed listening to the episode as well. Obviously, you can come along to these things. And um, by the way, big announcement coming next week on uh, that sort of topic. I'll say no more. Uh, or you can listen back. Right, first, this email then from Emily. Uh, really enjoyed the live podcast last night. Thank you for making the effort. I was sitting in the audience. Uh, we ran out of time for my question. So here's my follow-up comment. Emily says, all three politicians spoke about certainty, but also the differing ways in which they would support efforts to net zero. What struck me is that we already have a plan, the North Sea transition deal. We already have an agreement with the government on how to transition, how to fund it, how to focus effort. And the majority of the companies in the room have built their strategies around delivering it. It wasn't mentioned in the discussion, which left me really deflated. Is that no longer important? Will it not survive a general election? The beauty of the North Sea transition deal is that it's a cross-party deliverable. Is it dead in the water? Emily says, maybe it's more of a rant than a question, but I felt I had to mention it. Um, Jeff, do you want to consider the North Sea transition deal? Yeah, I mean, it was a long time coming in the making, many years of work from industry and government and a lot of outreach. And and Emily's absolutely right, and it kind of plays into what I was saying before. That should be the blueprint, the starting point for all the political parties. We understand that there's going to be different priorities uh, and, and of course, as well as technology advances and as new pipelines of projects come on. So, for example, North Sea, North sea Transition Deal was created before we knew about the 28 gigawatts of Scotland, for mm. example, off our shores. So we understand that things have got to be changed, but that should be the, 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 the starting point for uh, policy making going forward. Listen, uh, certainty, uh, mm. wherever you are, uh, in this country as a business and whatever sector you operate in has been sorely lacking from our um, uh, uh, political class uh, in recent years. 
if you can create that certainty and say to an investor, this is what we're going after and this is, you know, this is how you can do it. I think you will, as Andy said, point trying to emulate what's going on with the, the the Nordic countries and really accelerate this. So Emily's absolutely spot on to talk about the North Sea transition deal, um, which I say should be the starting point for the for the political parties going forward. Nice one. And just one other uh, email, just by way of our debrief on last week's uh, episode as well. Uh, Dick Winchester has been in touch saying, just listen to the podcast. It was interesting and some of the banter was highly amusing, but I think it missed one vital element, which was uh, what to what others are doing about this whole energy transition thing. For example, there are at least three projects going on in the Netherlands to take communities off-grid and use hydrogen for heat, and in one case, power. In Germany, there's now a company which will sell you a CHP unit. Does anybody want to pitch in on what a CHP unit is? Combined heat and power. power. Well done. 10 points to Jeff Aberdeen. A CHP unit that uses solar to produce hydrogen via an electrolyzer, some of which you can store long term, but which it uses today to power a fuel cell, which can power a heat pump. But in the future, we'll use the hydrogen to drive a fuel cell that produces both heat and power. So no more electricity bills. All you need is water. Plus, of course, no more grid. Last time I spoke to them, they had 500 already, says Dick. An Italian company has developed and is manufacturing a catalytic hydrogen boiler, i.e. they don't burn the stuff but pass it over a catalyst to produce heat. There's some extremely cool and highly advanced stuff going on outside Scotland and the UK, and our energy sector here needs to know this. Don't start me on hydrogen engines. Have a good weekend. I, two things about that that I would pick out. One, that he knows what he's, you know, proper knowledge and examples on what's going on. But second of all, the international comparisons. Yeah, Jeff, go on. I just wanted to, to, to pitch in. I know Dick. Dick, Dick actually, I, I think, I don't know if he still is, but he was a, a former member of the Scottish Government's Energy Advisory Board. He's a regular columnist in the P&J. He certainly knows his stuff. Mm. And I have to say, Dick, if you're listening, as he knows as well, uh, he shares my frustration at the lack of, of pace of change uh, within our energy uh, industry uh, and getting to these opportunities quicker. The only thing I would say to Dick is um, help us, you know, Mm. keep that voice um, loud, keep making the case, using your platform to do that. And also add that there is positive news coming on a few fronts in that respect. Now, uh, commercial sensitivities you know, prevent me from saying that I'm aware of anyway. And, and I think that we are making progress. Um, but, you know, linking back to Andy's point very, very quickly, you know, we're in a situation, I think Dick's making this point as well, where other countries seem to be able to just get on and do it. And we seem to uh, uh, kind of obfuscate, which is really frustrating. And we need to stop that. And, and get to actual delivery. Uh, and, but remember, and, and, well, that's a choice, though, Jeff. That's a that's a political yeah. choice, right? So one of the examples that Dick has touched on there is um, hydrogen and heating. We we have the ability to put blue hydrogen, i.e., that created um, from uh, uh, hydrocarbons. We can put that through our existing supply gas uh, to gas boilers. We can put it through our existing pipes and supply network to boilers in homes now. We have made a political choice not to do that and not to use blue hydrogen for heating in homes because we've put all our eggs in the basket of heat pumps. That's a choice. That's not technology. That's politics. That's ideology, not technology. So we've decided we don't want to use blue hydrogen, which we could right now, um, so we can put 20%, uh, a 20% blend through our existing network of blue hydrogen. We've chosen not to do it. So we only have ourselves to blame for some of uh, the disadvantage that we are now experiencing vis-a-vis other countries. Thank you for your emails. Echo everything you've just said. And Andy, look at that. Echo everything you've just said. A terrifying outbreak of consensus. Uh, you can email anytime, by the way, on anything that we're talking about. You can email hello at hollywoodsources.com to get in touch. Uh, but thanks for um, being part of the energy special last week. And yes, make sure you listen to this podcast next week for further announcements. If you don't want to hear these ads and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then you can pay four ninety nine a month and you'll never hear the ads again. Just press subscribe at the top of your feed and support the podcast that way. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hollywood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with the Royal Bank of Scotland. The Royal Bank has been part of Scottish communities for almost 300 years, helping businesses thrive, growing the economy, supporting customers to manage their money and to fulfil their financial dreams. From the world's first overdraft to the first fully-fledged internet banking service, the Royal Bank of Scotland has always innovated to make banking easier for customers. To date, the Royal Bank supports around one in three Scottish businesses and is one of the largest banks in Scotland for personal customers. It also remains one of Scotland's largest private sector employers, contributing millions of pounds to the economy each year. As we approach the Royal Bank's third centenary in 2027, the bank's commitment to Scotland and to championing the potential of the people, families and businesses who call Scotland their home remains as strong as ever. Should we go on to polling next? Because there's been quite a lot of polling. Most of it, most of it done by True North, it would seem. Uh, Jeff, you guys have been very busy in the last couple of weeks. Um, perhaps I want to start with this one uh, from just towards the end of January. Uh, this sort of headline: Labour has surged to its largest lead over the SNP for almost a decade. Trust has plunged, reports the Times, in the nationalist leadership. According to a new poll, mistrust of Hamza Youssef, dwindling faith in Nicola Sturgeon, who we'll talk a bit more about in a minute, uh, still looms large over the party. It's seen a growing chunk of independent supporters switch allegiances. Um, Andy, at what point do political parties, particularly those who are on the kind of bitter end of this polling, at what point do they have to stop saying, oh, it's just one poll and acknowledge that there is a trend here? Um. I, the, the history would suggest that political parties don't do that until they get beaten because then they realise it's real Fair. Uh, you know I think they try to tell themselves that it actually isn't happening it's not real I mean have you ever heard of it? how many times have we heard that's not what I'm getting on the doorstep yeah the doorstep like, mm, classic. classic yeah but that's because you're speaking to your mates isn't it that's because you're speaking to your mates yeah. so just, you know just, just but the his, history would suggest the that they don't yeah exactly yes you know uh, and uh, the this is real because it's happening in every poll. And if you dive deeper into those people who are speaking on the doorsteps, there's, you know, the reception is not quite uh, what they think it might be. The other famous one, I'll, I'll put you down as a maybe. Yeah, that is. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one as well. Look, um, the polling, the trend in polling is equally going against the SNP and the Scottish government. But look, this is not, this should not be surprising to anybody. They have been in government for 17 years. Uh, and they are currently having a very bad time of it. So people are turning against the SNP. This is not a surprise. Their kids are going to high school who can't do fractions. They get sick and the health service won't see them. They can't drive 100 miles on a trunk road in less than three hours. There aren't any jobs that pay a higher salary than the one they've got. So it's hardly a surprise they're pissed off and they don't feel very warm and cuddly about the sort of high-tax, quote-unquote, progressive tax regime that we are experiencing. You can't expect them to say, so, but, that all sounds fantastic. Yeah, but what you're saying though, much, right? So they're looking for alternatives. Right, so it's dissatisfaction with the SNP rather than overflowing enthusiasm for anyone else. Absolutely, and that is the key thing here. So we know from when, as I say, when you dive deeper into the conversations with people who are on the doorsteps, and I had quite a lot of them yesterday in Parliament actually, we know that a lot of SNP voters are saying, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know I'm not voting for you again. 
Mm. That so that is happening, but they're not saying right. I really like the look of Keir Starmer and Anas Sarwar, so I'm definitely going to Labour. They are not saying that, and. Labour have a chance here because people are turning against the SNP and people have a feeling that the country is not going in a good direction. But Labour would be uber complacent to think that they have that vote sealed up. They absolutely don't. And Labour in Scotland, they're in a totally different position to where Labour are in England, um, where there's really only one alternative, of course, and they're 20 points ahead of the Tories and they're looking like they're going to be in government and that's all fine. The polls here are still pretty close. They're still neck and neck. And if you look at this... If you take a sort of helicopter view of this, if you are the opposition and you're only neck and neck with a government that has A, been in power for 17 years and B, is struggling, mm. you've actually got to say to yourself, why are we not doing better? And that's what Labour should be asking themselves. Why are we not doing better? Yeah. I'll come in on, on, on the polling in a second. I just want to very <laughs> share with you a story that um, in my very early years um, uh, working, you know, a day a week at the Banff and Buckingham Parliamentary Office um, and being sent out to canvas in the European elections. Now, we were on Marconi Road in Fraserburgh, a, a tough area in, in Fraserburgh. And uh, Alex, I'm like, you go and do that house, Jeff. It was a bit of a wind up because in, in the window there was a, uh, a board that said um, uh, we're all victims of the deep state. Oh wow! And I didn't necessarily, ex- I didn't, I, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to get a positive response. But anyway, I, I went in all keen and enthusiastic, uh, wanted to impress, knocked on the door, and this rather <clears throat> dishevelled, thick-set chap, <laughs> uh, uh, bald here, and I said, to, a bald uh, head, and he, he was pretty. He was pretty, you know, threatening in appearance. Put it that way. That's maybe unfair to him. I'm sure he's a very nice chap. And I said, hello, sir. I, I wonder if you've given thought to the European election, whether you lend your vote to the SNP on this occasion. Uh, and he cut me off and says, get the f*** out of my, of my property right now. And uh, I uh, <laughs> very quickly ejected myself from that situation to see uh, Alex Salmon, Stuart Stevenson, MSP, oh, yeah. and another colleague, Alexander Anderson, laughing their arses off at me. Um, <laughs> and anyway, I always remember that was my first experience of canvassing. Can, uh, I, in can any I just election. say, like, now, campa- uh, campaigning and knocking doors for a European election must be one of the most thankless tasks, surely. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, I didn't get on to our pro-European pitch at all. I, I think um, uh, by the time he'd finished the sentences, I was already out of his guard. But it was uh, an interesting experience nonetheless. Anyway, um, okay, so the poll that you reference is the panel base for Sunday Times mm. poll, which did show Labour um, um, surging to their biggest leader of the SNP uh, in recent times, I think since actually before the referendum, actually, yeah, uh, independence referendum. Uh, the poll that True North did actually um, across all kind of three headline voting intentions, so Westminster, Holyrood constituency and Holyrood list, actually had the SNP marginally ahead on each. Uh, definitely the trend there of the Labour narrowing the gap um, uh, but kind of stagnating actually uh, somewhat and, and it got me thinking to, to kind of Andy's point um, at what point do these kind of polls start being disappointing for the Labour Party given the current uh, challenges the SNP face the, the, the polling period when this was uh, conducted actually was right during the, the kind of COVID WhatsApp kind of furore for the SNP and yet the SNP was still you know, marginally ahead on each. And don't get me wrong, they're going to lose a lot of seats under that, those scenarios. But um, I think the Labour Party, for them, they need to manage expectations. Um, and I think that there has to be a level of what what is a good result. We need to define that pretty mm. quickly, you know, and always uh, in these situations, you know, under-promise and over-deliver. So, you know, name it as, you know, we're going to we want 15, 16, up to 20 seats, whatever it is they think they can actually achieve and then um, uh, surpass those expectations. And for the SNP, the same applies. They need to start managing expectations too because uh, losing 20 seats would be a very disappointing result for them. But actually on the, on, you know, if polls like this persist, if it's only 20, you might be able to get away with one. And Hamza can say, OK, well, it's not as bad as people were saying. Mm. So I think both parties actually need to do a little bit of uh, expectation management as they uh, approach uh, polling day. But again, the the figure across two polls that I thought was most interesting, and it kind of is born out of our discussions in our podcast over the last few months, is that the independent support, mm. unchanged, unchanged in our poll, 
fifty fifty in in uh, in in the panel piece poll forty eight for fifty two against in ours and so there is that um considerable kind of crossover from labor you know from independent supporters moving to labor and I think this is really interesting and something that we really need to flesh out in our discussions and we've got an event um in a week or so at the labor party conference is how do they manage that strategically? Um, what is there going to be their offer in the Constitution? Because just going out and saying no to independence might kind of uh, annoy and 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 disaffect those voters that are willing to lend their vote to the Labour Party. So I think they've got something that they have to watch uh, in this respect, the Labour Party. Yeah, I want to add uh, on that exact point, uh, John Curtis, Professor Sir John Curtis, his analysis on this. So yeah, constitutional question, almost neck and neck. Uh, John Curtis saying, yes, supporters continuing to pivot towards Labour. Here's what he says. Whereas at the end of 2022, shortly before Nicola Sturgeon's resignation, 80% of current yes supporters were saying they would vote SNP in a UK general election. That figure has now fallen to a new low of 63%. He says the SNP need to overcome two key problems. The First is the relative unpopularity of Hamza Youssef. Uh, about one in four of those who voted SNP at the last Westminster election in 2019 believe he's doing a bad job as First Minister, and they appear especially likely to be unwilling to vote SNP again. And I think, um, Andy, that sort of leads me to ask, what tools are actually in the armoury? What 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 is possible from a sort of campaigning, messaging, political communication point of view, what actually do these parties? What can they draw on? Um, I think it's a difficult. I think it's difficult for the SNP to be honest. Um, they have to do better. <laughs> I know it sounds simple, but they have to do. They have to do better. Put that on a campaign they have to box. run the country better. <laughs> um, and and that that. But you know, we know from experience that running the country well is the best tool the SNP has in its armory. Yeah doing a good job of running the place. And at the moment, and again, we've talked before, whether it's, let's not get into the debate as to whether it's real or not, or we could have, but the perception, at least, is that they're not running the country well, and that's why they're struggling. And the tools to improve that are very difficult because the perception has also grown. Uh, again, we can debate whether it's fair or unfair, but the perception has grown that the reason they're not running the country well is largely because of policies that can be laid at the door of the Scottish Green Party. And so to reverse any of those and to show that you are listening and reversing some of these things probably means the end of the Butte House Agreement, which they don't want. So, you know, they are in a very difficult position and, and any move has consequences. In terms of Labour, it's perfectly clear to me what Labour have to do. Labour have already got the votes back from the Tories that were soft unionist votes that only vote for the party that's most likely to hold the UK together. Those votes have returned to Labour. They were all Blairite votes anyway. They weren't really Tory votes and they've gone back to Labour. What Labour have to do now is attract people who would on balance, as they do in these polls, as Jeff said, who on balance would say they believe in independence, but who for whom it's not the most important thing. Mm. And actually, if an offer was made with for more power or more devolution, either to local authorities or to Holyrood or something, that would attract these people. And at the moment, Labour aren't making that offer. So for me, that's what they have to do. But just one final note on this, um, on the polling that's been happening. Obviously, there's the, UK, the the general election polling, and that's interesting in terms of who's going to win and who's going to lose, and what the consequences will be uh, for each party afterwards. And that's all that's interesting, and we should continue to discuss that as the weeks go on as well. But the polling for the Scottish Parliament is arguably more fascinating in terms of the long term direction of travel for the country, because the last two polls have both shown the same thing, mm-hmm. which is a unionist majority at Holyrood and not a nationalist majority at Holyrood. That changes absolutely everything about what goes on at Scot- in Scotland at that point. And remember, the rules of the Scottish Parliament are that MSPs have to elect the First Minister. Yeah. So Anas Sarwar doesn't have to win the election in Scotland to be First Minister. He just has to, along with the Tories and the Lib Dems, get more seats than nationalists, and he'll be First Minister. So, And the last two polls have shown that that would be the outcome. So it's very interesting, uh, but it's worth having half an eye on that. I know it's two and a half years away. It's worth having half an eye on that because that utterly changes everything about Scottish politics at that point. Let's come back to that in a sec, because, Jeff, I want to ask you that same question as to what these political parties, what tools they've got at their disposal to do what, what we're saying they need to do. 
Yeah, I mean, well, in the general election context, you know, um, it's very hard to to make you know impactful change in such a short time. So Andy's absolutely right. Govern the country well uh, and display that you're um, competent. Uh, is is an absolute priority for the SNP, but you know uh, we could have an election, you know, in the next couple of months. We don't think it's going to be there, apart from you, Cal. Oh, thank you. It's more yes. likely to be autumn, but even so, to 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 to, to make that turnaround uh, and have people's views that you're competent in that time is going to be difficult. So you start looking at kind of um, uh, individual devices at your disposal, don't you? So one thing I I fully anticipate pretty pretty soon is a. Uh, reshuffle mm. at Holyrood. I, I think that there's going to have to be a, uh, a, a freshening up um, and that should be accompanied by, you know, the justification for freshening it up. So not just perhaps that Michael Matheson's got into difficulty with his iPad and we have to find him a replacement, actually with a, with a narrative that says, right, okay, had some time, my feet under the table, we need to change things up to pursue the following priorities and try and inject, um, uh, as I say, some freshness a new impetus to the government. So that's one device at your disposal. That's not going to, you know, be earth shattering. Reshuffles never really are. Um, the other thing is, is something that you mentioned uh, in terms of Hamza's own popularity or lack of popularity just now. Now, that would be a massive source of concern uh, to me if I was an SNP strategist. Now, Hamza is a, is a good guy. He's a likable guy. Um, and and he is capable. Uh, I know this. I know him. Uh, that hasn't necessarily kind of um, been communicated effectively. And it goes back to something I've been saying for ages. I think there's two or three things that he needs to identify himself as and go after it, you know, relentlessly. Um, he is first minister for all of Scotland, all of Scotland's industry sectors, um, interests. But I think people want to see from him, like, who are you and what do you really stand for? And when you're facing an election and you know you're facing an election, try and pick one or two, two or three things and just everything in your diary. Speak to your advisors. I've done it myself in government. Everything should um, uh, be linked to those priorities. Now, it's for others to suggest what it is. You know, you know my views. I'm mm -hmm. not going to bore listeners with my views and what those things should be. But that's something he has to do. It's a tactic for the Labour Party. Um, I totally agree with what Andy's saying. You know, I'm not entirely sure there's a a, a, a huge swathe of the population really saying yes. Like 1997, we need change. We need Labour and minimum wage and all these different things that they're going to do. It's more like, well, you're no the Tories and you're no the SNP, which we've been lumbered with for some considerable time, and that's not the best platform for success. Mm. Um, uh, and so I do, you know, look at a couple of policies we've had in the last. Weeks since we've met, we've had the Green Prosperity Fund, the £28 billion um, pledged by the Labour Party at UK level, now looking like it's going to be significantly reduced or reneged upon, right? That was actually quite a compelling um, uh, kind of election pitch in my view. And so that's another thing that they're reneging upon. Another one, uh, the House of Lords reform, which yeah. just happened, I think that was uh, at the weekend, yeah. we found, you know... I, none of us, you know, within the political kind of severe thought that this was likely to happen. There's been pledges like this for um, many, many years and, and generations. But again, it's kind of that sense of, well, so what are you actually for then? You know, if you're not doing all these things, are you just, just going to dine out in the fact you're not the Tories? That might get them a win, but it might not get them a big win. So they really need to to um, uh, align themselves with a clear policy agenda, not too dissimilar to my proposal for Hamza Yusuf. What are the two, three things that they really want to be known for? I said last week on the podcast, we kind of know what they're against. Mm. We really know what they're for. So those would be the things I'm looking at for for, for the Labour and the SNP. For, for the Tories, um, I think they're left with one strategy and one strategy only, and we've discussed it. It's the economy. It's just the economy. Um, I expect a lot of sweeties to be given out on March 6th at the UK budget and uh, try and see if that has any short-term impact on people's views on the economy. I know there's lots of things about boats and, and, and Rwanda policy, frankly, Ultimately, for them right now, they're in such a difficult position that their only hope is if the economy is performing well at the time people you know, go in the ballot box. And so yeah. that'll be the focus, I'm sure, of the budget and indeed um, thereafter. That is the insight you get on Holyrood sources, by the way. The unionist majority question is quite an interesting one, Jeff. I don't know if you want to just give us 30 seconds on that, that Andy was pointing at, you know, that in a couple of years time, it could be unionist parties running yeah. Holyrood. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of... Yeah, I listen, 
I love polls. I'm a geek. <laughs> uh, like the rest of us, we look at this stuff and think it's all very interesting. There's so much water to go under the bridge mm. before we get to the, the Holyrood uh, cycle. So it's not particularly um, useful to, to pay too much um, uh, uh, notice to that. The only thing I'd say is, you know, after this general election, Hamza Yusuf will still be first minister or he won't be. Uh, that's where, I, you know, and right now it's on a knife. But let's be honest, he's, he's not stupid. Um, he recognises that, you know, he needs to fight every day from this day to the election as if it's his last. If he's not a first minister and there's a new uh, 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 SNP leader, that changes the, the equation entirely for 2026. If he is still leader and he's holding on and Labour have taken quite a few seats, um, uh, uh, then perhaps with a Labour government at Westminster, he can expose them on a lot of the issues that they may not have delivered on in that window. You'll have about a year and a half to do. Uh, that's when we'll really address the Holyrood cycle. I'm not interested in majorities here, there, elsewhere, quite frankly, for 2026. There's too, 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 too long a time to go before we can make a, a proper assessment on what's likely to happen there, in my view. Fair. Uh, right, good. Uh, good chat on polling and where we're currently sat. Right, we want to just do a few minutes then on the COVID inquiry, because last week, of course, this podcast was focusing on the energy special in Aberdeen, and understandably so. But with that in mind, uh, it meant that we kind of um, uh, skipped over Nicola Sturgeon at the COVID inquiry last Wednesday. So I think it's worth just hearing a bit of Nicola Sturgeon and kind of reflecting on what's what's happened, basically. Uh, because this is a kind of large part, it's become a large part of the SNP narrative at this point. Um, policy decisions over WhatsApp messages, retaining them or indeed deleting them. Uh, pre- sort of defence that no official business was carried out on there. Nicola Sturgeon deleting WhatsApp messages. And basically, I suppose all of this coming down to, to trust. But I think just by way of context, let's have a listen, first of all, to, well, one of the kind of key moments of Nicola Sturgeon's evidence to the COVID inquiry. Uh, this was the moment that she got emotional about the fact that she had been First Minister during the pandemic. Um, did you consider yourself against that background and your considerable ministerial experience to be precisely the right First Minister for the job? No, that's not how I would have thought of it at all. Um, I was the First Minister when uh, the pandemic struck. There's a large part of me wishes I hadn't been um but I was, and I wanted to be the best first minister I could be during that period. It's for others to judge the extent to which I succeeded. Andy, I want to come to you first on this, and it's always a difficult one. I remember Boris Johnson got a bit emotional as well during his evidence at the COVID inquiry, and it's difficult to kind of work out, actually, from my point of view, what the question is here, because I don't, I don't know if it's fair to ask about authenticity, but I think it's fair to ask about seeing someone like this, who was a leader during a crisis, addressing the inquiry in this way, and by extension, addressing the public in this way. Does this change perceptions of Nicola Sturgeon? Um, well, I'm happy to answer. I'm happy to answer the question on authenticity, which is that I think that Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon's emotion at these inquiries was authentic. I don't mm. have any problem believing that it was. Um, They were both in a very, very difficult position that neither of them would ever have thought uh, going into the jobs that they had that they would be in. Uh, You know, everybody wants to be a good time prime minister, a good time first minister. And of course, you know, you're not going to get that, but you don't, you also don't think you're going to get this, right? You don't think you're going to get a once in a century pandemic to have to deal with. So um, I have no problem believing that both individuals, Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon, did the thing they thought was best. Yes, um, I have no problem thinking that they both worked hard. Um, and I also don't care about, I mean, look, let me just be frank here since we're in, in a, I'm in a frank mood today, right? <laughs> um, politicians, and a, a lot of this comes down to what's happened. The perception of all of this is going to be really bad for Nicola Sturgeon and Alistair Jack and Boris Johnson and all politicians because of the mass deletion of WhatsApp messages. But can we just be real about this? And Jeff will know this as well from his time in politics. Politicians spend a lot of time talking about their colleagues in negative ways, in their own party, right? <laughs> the reason they were deleting WhatsApp messages is not because they were making decisions about COVID, it's because they were slagging off their colleagues, right? That's why they delete WhatsApp messages. And the flack for deleting WhatsApp messages 
is less than the flack they would get if all the things that all the politicians were saying about all their colleagues came out into the open, because a lot of it would be vociferous. And as I say, Jeff will know very well, like I do from my time in politics, the things that you say about your own colleagues are far worse than the things that you say about opponents. So but the, that's why WhatsApp but, messages were being deleted. Sure, sure, sure. And that, that's, like, you know, that, that, that's a valid sort of theory to put forward, and that's fine. However, the inquiry has been quite diligent at selecting which messages it presents to people. Lots of them are cut yeah. out because they're considered to be irrelevant or unnecessary or whatever. So actually, the handful of people that would see these things are the judges and lawyers involved in the inquiry who would then go through and decide what's relevant and what's not. So actually, avoiding embarrassment don't, the, the doesn't come close to a good the excuse. Don't know that when they're, but the politicians don't know that when they're panicking and deleting all their WhatsApp messages when this first comes out, right? They don't know. You know mm. They don't know that's going to happen. Now, that, that is, I'm not, that's not an excuse Totally. No, I, I hear you. I get you. We have to accept that WhatsApp is a medium of communication now in the same way as 20 years ago it would have been a conversation down the corridor. Yeah. My issue with it, in a such as and, and and what did emerge in WhatsApp is that some, if not decisions, lots of discussion about mm. COVID was taking place on WhatsApp. We know that. And that discussion did not reflect well on, uh, in the case of last week, did not reflect well on Nicola Sturgeon. What I do think, though, and the point I am laboriously getting around to making, is that um, I don't care about any of that compared to the actual big issue of this inquiry. So... Um, the biggest thing that happened in the Edinburgh section of the inquiry last week was Professor Mark Woolhouse, who very, very clearly said that not only was there no evidence of the need for a lockdown, there was also no evidence that lockdown did really anything whatsoever to arrest this virus. And remember, we made those choices, lockdown, school closures. We've talked about the Scandinavians earlier in this Cast, but in this issue, well, they made a different choice. And as a result of that different choice, they don't have a crippled economy. They don't have a mental health epidemic uh, and an academic collapse among children because they made different choices. So my issue with our leaders, north and south of the border, is not that they swore on WhatsApp, not that they deleted WhatsApp, is that they didn't do well enough for me on the really big decisions mm. on this virus, lockdown and school closure. Yeah, valid point. Jeff? Yeah, <laughs> there's a number of different layers to this. And, uh, you know, it, it is a complex situation, as we discussed the other week. Firstly, on, you know, you know the question around the, the authenticity of, of Nicola Sturgeon. And, and I agree with Andy. Look, one thing I don't think any charge that could be levelled at Nicola is that she wasn't given her her all. Um, and I think she did give her all. And, and it was a unique set of circumstances, as it was for Boris Johnson, as it was for every world leader, quite frankly. It was an unprecedented situation. And these decisions uh, had impact on people's lives. And, and ultimately, people um, lost their lives as, as a result of decisions that uh, leaders had to take. So I don't in any way question uh, the, the authenticity of, of what we saw from Nicola Sturgeon. The, the politics of this, though... Um, uh, particularly in the Scottish context, relate to the you know the now infamous interview that Nicola gave with Kieran Jenkins uh, way back when, when she gave a clear undertaking, a guarantee that WhatsApps would be made available. And then there was the um, recent um, uh, event in Parliament where Nicola Sturgeon addressed the the, the journalists, and and it been kind of mooted at that point from the inquiry that they had not received any of the, the 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 messages, and she failed to kind of shut it down. Then she she gave a kind of non answer that made the the messages the issue right mm. and Andy's quite right. What we want to get into in much more detail is you know how was government operating? Was it centralised around two or three people? How did people come to take decisions on school closures? Uh, how long lockdowns were for? The different gradings of of systems that different local authorities were put in in terms of being able to go and meet your families. But because of that, um, uh, what what went before the focus politically became on the. the 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 messages and and sadly uh you know as i also mentioned the other week you know the issue of trust around the smp or not just this but a range of other issues is now being questioned openly and so i totally understand why there's been so much scrutiny of this it might feel unfair but i do understand so i see mm. both sides you know I, I think nicola sturgeon is right to say look i was up there every day trying to give my all 
be as transparent as possible. But the point is, she also gave a commitment to show that she was being transparent as possible when the inquiry came. And sadly, that's not been the case. For whatever reason, that's not been the case. Um, and so it, I, I, just, I just feel that, you know, the sad thing about this, to echo Andy's point, is that we're not, or so far, we haven't got to the root of the decision-making process. Whether the WhatsApps and the messages would have helped with that, we'll never know now because they don't exist because they have been deleted. Yeah. But I hope that we do get to the, the, the meat and drink of this and, and really understand because if we're going to learn lessons, hey, you know, I was watching a US talk show the other night and an epidemiologist was, was on saying, um, you know, there could be another similar COVID in the next five years. We need to learn the lessons mm. and best practice so that we don't, you know, we minimize the wrong decisions and maximize those that were positive in terms of accelerating the way we deal with these uh, 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 diseases and pandemics. So I, 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 I can't help but feel for, for, for Nicola and other decision makers at that time. It was unprecedented, but I also equally understand the, the, the scrutiny they've received and 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 that's the, your lot when you're a politician yeah um i'd like to say actually that the podcast we're in touch with people who have been witnesses at the covid inquiry expert witnesses you know epidemiologists etc and one thing we're determined to do on this podcast when it's appropriate and the inquiry's kind of heard its evidence and all of that is to hear from those who have given expert evidence and to understand the decision making as well now, obviously the, the inquiry places certain restrictions on people in terms of what they can say and when but when we can speak to people we will uh, so stay with us on the podcast for that right Jeff and Andy thank you I just want to mention that next week on this podcast you will hear from the former leader of Scottish Labour Jim Murphy uh, that's ahead of us heading to Glasgow for the Scottish Labour Conference we're back at the pub for an episode we're recording that on Friday night uh, next Friday night uh, so you can hear that over the course of the weekend and hear from Labour politicians and journalists and whoever else happens to be mingling around at, um, at Jeff's Drinks Bash that we will be sitting in the corner of and the other thing to mention is that next week on this podcast we are making quite a huge announcement and so you don't want to miss that make sure you follow and subscribe and we'll talk to you next week next week